0: We all want the same stuff. Like we all want a nice house and a cool car and a great relationship and tons of sex and money and fun and a great family. Like we all want the same shit. Like there's nothing particularly interesting or unique about that.
1: That's Mark Manson, New York Times best-selling author and the self-help expert for people who hate self-help.
0: The thing that actually makes you a unique individual is what you're able to give up or what you enjoy essentially giving up.
1: I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with renowned personal development expert Mark Manson to discuss why growth is an endlessly iterative process, why true freedom requires limitation, and why our growth is often a byproduct of our struggles
0: what are the most meaningful moments in your life? What are the things that you're most proud of in your life? There's not a single thing that you're proud of that didn't require some degree of struggle or sacrifice. It's a one-to-one relationship. Like nobody was like given a Ferrari for their birthday and they're like, man, I'm really proud of that Ferrari. It's like, you didn't do shit. It's just human nature. Like when things are given to you without any sort of sacrifice, you take it for granted. You don't appreciate it. And then it's the things that you struggle incredibly for that end up being the most meaningful things in your life.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Mark Manson is a New York Times best-selling author whose books have been translated into more than 60 languages and have sold over 13 million copies worldwide. His content can be described as self-help for people who hate self-help. I began our conversation by asking Mark what inspired him to pursue a career as an author.
0: I never intended to be an author. I never intended to be in the self-development space. I started a blog back in like 2008. I actually had a job in finance. I thought I was going to work in finance. Back then, I just kind of, I was a young single guy. And I, you know, like a lot of early bloggers back then, like I just kind of wrote about my life and things that were going on. And somehow I, I started to develop a little bit of a following. And about a year or two in, people started emailing me asking for advice, like, they, like, I'm sitting here like a 25 year old who doesn't know his head from his ass. And like, I'm getting like random strangers on the internet, like sharing their life issues and their life stories and, and asking me what I think. And so, you know, initially, I just kind of like, took a stab at it, you know, I was like, Well, I don't know, bro, like, that sounds that sounds like a horrible idea. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know, like just basic, basic kind of like common sense stuff. But the thing was was the website started to snowball, and it actually started to reach a point where I had enough readers that I didn't really need a day job like it it could kind of become my full time gig and so I, I started realizing I'm like, you know if I'm gonna do this, like if people are actually gonna listen to me and take me seriously, like I shouldn't know what the hell I'm talking about and so I, that's when i I started going out and buying dozens of books and getting into psychological research and trying to understand kind of the history of the personal development market like understand what a lot of the common messages are out there which of the messages lines up with the academic research which of the messages do not line up with the academic research and and just kind of started building from there by 2013 2014 like it turned into a huge thing you know i had millions of people reading my site i got a book deal um living all over the world I'm going on TV and stuff. And so it was just kind of this crazy, unintentional, snowball-y thing <laughs> that, that really just started from me goofing around with a, with a blog and a website.
1: So when, when you wrote the book, I mean, the, the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, right? A lot of people consider this like the self-help book for people who hate self-help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious, what, what drove you to write the book in the first place?
0: Well, I, you know, my personal background I I cons- I read and consumed a lot of self-help content in my teens and say when I was in college. And um and I followed a lot of it and some of it was very useful and some of it was not. But I think, you know, by the time I kind of reached my late 20s, I became very disillusioned with it. You know, it was I did all, you know, I did all the right things you're supposed to do. I had goals and dreams and I created plans to achieve them and I started a business and I uh traveled the world and I like you know, implemented all this different relationship advice and stuff. And I like checked all the boxes. And around the time I was like 30, I I just kind of looked around. I'm like, wow, this is like, it feels very meaningless. It it felt very pointless. Um, It felt very superficial. It, It really felt like I had just checked a lot of boxes. In a way, it felt like a little bit objectified, you know, a lot of these accomplishments that I had. And on top of that, I just, I wasn't Super happy, like I wasn't. I didn't feel great. Like I didn't feel any different. You know, it's like I set out to do all the things that twenty-year-old Mark wanted to do, and then I got to thirty, and I'm like, "Whoa, shit!" I feel the same. So it's kind of like, in a way, it's like a midlife crisis. And so I, I got a little bit curious about that, and I guess maybe a little bit. I don't know if pessimism is the right word, but you know, I, I just kind of had this like reckoning with myself of like, you know, nothing is ever going to make you completely happy doesn't matter how many goals you accomplish, or how awesome your lifestyle is, or how much money you've got in the bank, or how financially independent you are, like, you're never going to outrun the problems, because your mind is always generating the problems. And to me, this was like a very profound thing. And when I looked at my industry, I was like, shit, is saying this, like, nobody's talking, like, everything is being marketed as like, you know, this five day seminar will solve every problem in your life, you know, take it and be happy forever. And so I I developed like a very strong distaste for that kind of message. Like it felt very unethical to me. And so I was like, you know, I'm going to write a book. I want to write the anti book for that. You know, I want to write the antidote essentially. And I did, and I never expected it to kind of take off the way that it has. But, um, It really resonated within the culture. I think uh, something about our generation, you know, just like disgruntled (laughs) millennials really identified with it and said, yeah, this is a bunch of bullshit. Life is suffering. Life is an endless series of problems. They all hop on board.
1: And and I I love it in the sense that, you know, there's. it seems like there's this almost endless chase where everybody wants to be happy, right? And, and I don't know so much if it's ha- the happiness that they're chasing or fulfillment, and you can get into like the dopamine component of that. But at the end of the day, I guess it's just this idea of there's something that I want to be or feel, and I'm not there yet. And I'm trying to get there, whether it's through um, career growth, financial growth, wh- you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I know you, you talk a lot about it in the book, and just kind of this idea of freedom, perhaps. But you got there, and I guess that at that moment, you you realize, okay, well, Maybe this isn't it. What is it that people are chasing?
0: Well, I, I think maybe part of this is cultural, but um, I think a lot of Western culture is kind of just predicated on this idea that there is, you know, whatever goal it is you have, there is some sort of like algorithmic way of accomplishing that goal, you know? So it's like, if you want to be a hotshot lawyer, it's like, okay, you get into one of these law schools and then you go clerk or whatever at this this one of these firms and then you work your way up and it's like, you, there's like the the step one, two, three, four, five, like you can kind of lay it all out on a sheet of paper. And I think so much of our society and culture is built around that kind of assumption that we try to apply that to mental and emotional states and it completely backfires, you know? So it's like you can't, there is no like algorithmic process for happiness. In fact, the mere fact that you try to create an algorithmic process for happiness prevents you from experiencing happiness the fact that you are trying to manipulate or maneuver yourself into a sense of freedom is the exact thing that is preventing the sense of freedom. And so this, it kind of like, this is where the, the more Eastern philosophical approach, I think, got it right, which is that there are certain things in our internal experience that you cannot bargain for, you cannot negotiate. Like it's it's the way you get to them is actually by letting go not by trying to control by controlling more if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah it's i guess it's like that the backwards law right like the the more you pursue feeling better all the time the less satisfied you become and but but on that note when you know in writing the book i think sometimes people could read the title and they think okay well like not giving a fuck they think that's just being indifferent about everything mm-hmm. but you argue that it's not it's not just being indifferent about everything it's not just not caring about anything at all
0: yeah, it's so the the title is a bit of a Trojan horse. You know, it's like everybody's always stressed out these days. And so I think by putting not giving a fuck on the on the cover, it kind of tricks people into, into reading this book that they think is gonna make them chill out. But I mean, essentially, like what what not giving a fuck is, or what the essentially the question of what do you give a fuck about, it's a question of values and priorities. And um I I strongly believe that the core question of our day and age is what is worth caring about or what is worth focusing on you know we're we live in an age where we are constantly overwhelmed with information and opportunity and so the biggest struggle for most of us is to figure out where to delegate our attention our limited time and attention like what is worth focusing on what is worth caring about and that's it's a really really hard thing to figure out and I think, you know, five years ago when the, when the book came out, I think people were very unaware that that struggle was going on within themselves. I think today people are generally aware that that is a struggle, but we, you know, as a culture, we still haven't really figured out how to tackle it.
1: And, yeah, and, and, you know, it's uh, I think there's a point in the book. I saw you post this recently on social media where you say that you can't be an important and life-changing presence for some people without also being a joke and an embarrassment to others. Yeah. What, what did you mean by that?
0: <laughs> well, it, it's anything that is, is, I think, kind of exceptional, any action or behavior that is exceptional is going to be polarizing in its responses. So if you're acting and behaving in a way to minimize conflict or confrontation, you're basically optimizing for doing nothing. Important <laughs> because anything important is going to have some sort of disagreement or like people are going to see it differently. And so the more you're optimizing for something that's important, the more you're going to polarize people's responses. And and I think the reason that feels profound to me at least is like it's kind of a, an expectation. Like it's there's a little bit of a narrative bias in that, like we look back in history, right? Like we look at somebody like Winston Churchill or like Theodore Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln, and today with the benefit of 50 or 100 years of history it's like it is uncontroversial that what churchill or lincoln did is a positive thing like it is not really debatable by like 99% of people that what they did were positive things but that's with the benefit of history like if you look at the decisions they made in and their their own time they were highly controversial people were extremely upset there was lots of debate everybody was angry And so I think we forget that. We forget that, like, there's pretty much never going to be that decision in your life that you are doing something both extremely important and extremely undivisive. The simple, like, the really watered down version of it is just like haters (laughs) going (laughs) to (laughs) hate. Yeah,
1: well, and look, it, and it's true, and know, and, and coming back this idea of happiness. I mean, because you you confront it very early on. I mean, you say like this happiness stuff. It's it's a problem, and you know, a lot of people believe like if I could just eliminate my problems, then I'll be happy. Right. Like I just it's just this idea that let's say you know whatever set of problems that somebody has, they resolve those things, and then in the absence of those problems, there's just joy and happiness. And there's a story that you share, uh, and I love reading this, especially for the plot twist, right, of the Himalayan prince um which is mm-hmm. a great way of depicting this um if you're open to if you're open to sharing that but i think that helps to give an idea of like really kind of the the root of happiness and perhaps the importance of suffering
0: sure i mean it's it's uh, you know this calls again right back to eastern philosophy i mean it's it's essentially it's the mythological story of the buddha you know which is and i think it's very profound the way that the buddha's story is laid out traditionally which is he's born a prince all of his needs are fulfilled. His, his father's the king or the Raja or the Sultan, or whatever they were called back then, he gives him everything anything he wants, all the food, drink, party, music, whatever he wants. It's always provided for him. And he becomes a very deeply sad and unsatisfied person. And so he decides to go to the other extreme, which is he wants to limit or abstain from everything. So he decides to go be a beggar on the street because he, he, he identifies that his, you know, having everything he wants is is what's causing him to be unhappy. So he figures, like, well, if I just have nothing that I want, then I'll achieve enlightenment and feel happy or whatever. So he goes and lives in the street as a beggar. He realizes that that sucks too. Like, <laughs> there's there's the same way you're, uh, you know, having everything you want uh, just causes angst and stress in wanting more, having nothing that you want causes angst and stress and wanting more. Um, and so I think kind of the, the profound insight from his story is essentially that it's whether you are abundant in something or lacking in something, it's it's that attachment to that thing that is causing you the, to suffer, not, not the thing itself. I kind of modernize that in the book by talking about you know framing it in terms of happiness which is like if you think that you're going to get rid of all your problems and that's going to make you happy well trying to get rid of all your problems is itself a problem you know getting rid of your problems and keeping your life so that it has no problems is itself a problem you know it's it's any solution to a problem merely presents a new problem um and so there's kind of this endless stream of problems in life and our problem is not that we have problems it's that we Think that we shouldn't have them, or or that our expectation is that you know it's possible to live without problems. You know, the chapter is very much just a call to find problems you enjoy having, you know, like that's essentially what happiness is is finding the struggle that enlivens you, makes you excited to get up in the morning feels meaningful, essentially. Because you're never going to get away from struggle, you're never going to get away from attachment, and you're never going to get away from problems. So you might as well find the ones that feel as though they are worth suffering for. Yeah, and, and
1: I know that you mentioned before that like when most people are asking, "What do you want out of life?" The, you know the. the probably a better question is what pain do you want in your life or what are you willing to, to struggle for? And I, cause that, I think it can yield a very different answer. You ask somebody, what do they want in life? They say, I want to be happy or there's this material thing or, or whatever it is. Um, but that's very
0: nondescript. It's very ambiguous. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's like not interesting, right? Like we all want the same stuff. Like we all want a nice house and a cool car and, uh, a great relationship and like tons of sex and money and fun and like a great family. Like we all want the same shit. Like there's nothing particularly interesting or unique about that. Um, the thing that makes us who we are is like what we're actually willing to sacrifice. Um, and what we enjoy sacrificing. Right. So like it, it's, it's, the reason i'm i'm a, a writer is not because i like sold a bunch of books the reason i'm a writer is because i enjoy sitting by myself for weeks and weeks and weeks and like rewriting the same page over and over and over again you know it's it's the reason somebody's a lawyer is not necessarily cuz they went to law school it's cuz it's they thrive among the challenges that are required to to do the legal profession well so it's it's not the thing that actually makes you a unique individual is what what you're able to give up, or what you're, what you enjoy, essentially giving up, because we all we all want the same good stuff. It's like that's a given.
1: Anybody who's accomplished anything of significance knows that it often takes struggle to achieve success. I asked Mark to elaborate on how to trust the process and find meaning in your journey.
0: Yeah, well, and it's it's the fact that it doesn't feel good that makes it meaningful, right? Like and i think this is this is an argument i make in my my second book which is that um by making like by the by making modern life so comfortable so safe and comfortable and um and kind of like emotionally insulated um we actually remove our ability to to find meaning like if you think about like what are the most meaningful moments in your life or like what are the things that you're most proud of in your life there's not a single thing that you're proud of that didn't require some degree of struggle or sacrifice. Like it's, it's a one-to-one relationship. Like there's, (laughs) you know, it's like nobody was like given a Ferrari for their birthday and they're like, man, I'm really proud of that Ferrari. It's like, you didn't do shit. (laughs) You know, it's like you take the humans. It's just human nature. Like when things are given to you without any sort of sacrifice, you take it for granted. You don't appreciate it. And then it's the things that you struggle incredibly for that end up being the most meaningful things in your life. And so um, by like trying to insulate ourselves from any sort of struggle or hardship, the psychological side effect of that is that we tend to have more struggles with finding meaning or finding things that are, you know, seem purposeful. Now, this isn't to say that we should all go back to like living in poverty and like killing each other. It's just to say that this is this is a side effect of the comforts of modern life is that like, you know, the same way a side effect of having the freedom to live wherever you want or work in any career you want is the stress and anxiety that comes with making the right choice. You know, the side effect of being safe and comfortable is that you don't have as many opportunities to to feel that that sense of meaning that comes with sacrifice. And it almost a an idea that to truly be happy, one must
1: also be in a state of constant struggle. I mean, I I saw something you posted the other day where it said that the meaning your goals provide when you're working towards them is the meaning that is taken away once you achieve them.
0: Uh, If you could elaborate on that. Totally. And I experienced this hard, you know, when my book took off and became a bestseller and everything, like it actually, like I was Probably the most depressed I had been since I was a teenager, simply because I didn't know what the hell to do. Like (laughs) I'm like, okay, what now? You know, like it's I had this this goal, kind of this dream of like becoming a best selling author. And in my head, I thought, you know, I was like, all right, I'm gonna be writing books into my 40s and 50s, and I'm gonna like build up a reputation and a core group of of readers, and you know, maybe in like 10, 15 years, I'll, I'll get there. And it happened in like three months. And I spent like the next six, like sitting around wondering what the hell to do with myself. Like my my whole vision of my future and my identity was like kind of wrapped up in this this long term goal. And uh, and as soon as I got it, which was great, don't get me wrong. Like I I just felt very lost. Um, so it's I mean what what you said is totally true, and that a, a prerequisite for happiness is a constant source of struggle. And like this isn't. It's funny because again if you look outside the realm of emotions like this is this is just like an obvious thing in other aspects of of life right so it's like a health, like to have a healthy body you have to constantly put put it through stress and strain to have a healthy career you have to consistently surmount and overcome challenges like if you're if you're working in a firm and like you're literally not accomplishing anything like obviously you're not going to be promoted or you're not going to be given more responsibilities. So it's like in every other aspect of life, like we just understand it as obvious that you need struggle to progress. You need struggle to remain healthy and happy. But for some reason, when it comes to kind of our emotional life, you know, we have this weird expectation that we should just be able to be happy. Like we shouldn't have to deal with anything, you know?
1: And I guess some of this even comes back to like Maslow's, you know, hierarchy of needs to an extent, because once you've got like the basic, like the physiological, like the safety, you know, you you get respect, all those things. You've got love in your life. Um, When you get up there, like self-actualization seems like that's that's the main thing that's really propelling. The highest of achievers, right, or some of the most uh, you know uh, exceptional people that we admire. That these people now have this mission of just consistent obsession with improvement and just being the best version of themselves that they can be. Like, I, I mean, have you found that to be the case?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one way you could frame it is that we're kind of you know among the um, <laughs> you know among the highly educated people in the in the Western world, we we have kind of a crisis of of self actualization of like okay. We're all safe and fed and connected and educated and successful and, and you know, financially stable. So n- now we just have to obsess and struggle with our identities all the time. Like, who am I? Who am I going to be? What do I want to accomplish in this life? What do I stand for? Like, these are actually very difficult questions uh, when everything is, else is taken care of. And so it's kind of, there's just this like ongoing... Psychological crisis, <laughs> you know, it's like t- it's it really is like hashtag high quality problems, but um, but it, it's very real, you know. It it does. In my second book, I present a lot of like mental health statistics, and it's incredible. It's like when you look at things like depression, anxiety, suicide, you know, all of these things. It's like not only is it the wealthier and safer the country, the more prevalent these mental health issues are, but it it even it even maps to like the zip code you know so like you can you can take a city like chicago or san francisco or whatever and it's like the wealthier and safer the zip code the more prevalent these mental health issues are so it's on the one hand you kind of joke you're like yeah you know first world problems oh i'm not self actualized you know what's the meaning of my life but like people are really struggling with this like it it is a real it is a real ongoing issue i think for people in the 21st century
1: Yeah, you know it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people that listen to this podcast—they have successful careers, they've achieved financial goals, they've got loving families. I mean, um, they've uh, achieved a lot of those basic needs, and those needs are met. And now they're at a point of okay, well. Why am I doing anything? Like they essentially, I don't have to work if I don't choose to work. I don't have yeah. you know it's it's almost like how does someone this is interesting because we did a podcast with Tim Grover when you talk about like someone like Tom Brady, right? Like going yeah. after another Super Bowl ring. And it's not the money not the respect, it's not anything to prove to anybody else. And it's like, what keeps the highest achievers wanting to keep pushing? And more importantly, I think what more interesting question is, how does that person justify making a trade-off of saying, I'm going to trade off time with my family or with my children? Um, because I want to pursue this this goal that I have, knowing that I don't actually have to do it and I have nothing to prove to anybody else.
0: Yeah, actually, I I find athletes to be like a fascinating microcosm of this issue because you, you essentially, you have these people who are insanely successful by every metric in their 20s and like early 30s. And then suddenly, you know, in their late 30s to early 40s, the one thing that defined everything they did since they were like three years old is taken away from them. And, um, I've actually got a friend here in New York who, who is a, uh, he's like a sports psychologist and like works with professional athletes and stuff. And he told me, I asked him about this and he said, you get rookies in like the NBA or MLBs. Like, obviously with rookies, there's a lot of other stuff to kind of cover first. Like, <laughs> you know, don't waste all your money. Um, <laughs> you know, don't go out <laughs> drinking until 5am the day before the game he's like, even guys as young as like 22, 23, I I start asking them, you need to think about what your life's going to be like after baseball or after football. Because he said that it's just, it's so common to kind of just watch these people, you know, their entire identities are, are essentially taken from them. Everything they've been known for, everything they've worked on, everything they've cared about for decades, their entire adult lives is over. And you know it's it's in a way that's kind of only downhill from there and so it's it's um it's like a very like kind of existential crisis that a lot of these guys go through and it's 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 like a fascinating thing to think about but it's i think it works the other way too you know for for us like mortals and normal people you can have that on the other end you know it's like if you work your way up in your industry to the top and you've got this huge bank account and you can kind of do what, you know, organize your schedule the way you want. You can take a month off here, a month off there, take a sabbatical if you want. Like you start running into these questions of like, yeah, why am I doing this? Like, how much do I care about this? Should I go start another business? Should I go like, there's almost like a, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say it like, it's a good thing. Right. But it's like, I, I want to say it's like a, there's like a curse to the freedom. Like I struggle with this now too. Like, like my books have done well enough that I'm pretty much set financially. And so sometimes I wake up and I'm like, you know, maybe I'll like, maybe I'll like work on a startup or something, you know, and I'll just kind of like go down this rabbit hole for a couple of days. And I'm like, what am I, what am I talking about? I'm an author. Like, this is, this is ridiculous. But like, it's almost like a, it's like the curse of having too many options is that you just, you never feel like completely resolved or satisfied.
1: And to your point, I mean, I would ask like, is it really that bad of a thing i mean because let's say in the business world unlike in sports these guys can stay on the field in you know into their 70s and 80s and they yep. can keep going and they can say hey i want to do this another 30 years and i'm energized and i'm excited and i enjoy what i'm doing and it you know and it does come with that struggle that they're worried maybe that like either if they stop doing it, that maybe they'll lose their identity or if they retire, like, you know, what, what could happen then? Right. Like this, um, could they just expire completely and just wilt. So it's almost like, where do you draw the line between that being a good thing that someone remains engaged and passionate and driven about what they're doing versus, Hey, you know, at some point, like what, you know, you know, maybe you should stop. Maybe you should smell the
0: roses. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's good problem again. You know, it, it's, it's important to always keep that in perspective. And again, I, I talk about, in, in my book, Everything is Fucked, I talk about how it's like, this is an improvement, It's but it's a trade-off, right? So it's like, if you look 100 years ago, finding meaning and importance was really easy. Like There was war all the time, there was disease all the time, like 80% of the population worked on farms, and finding meaning was very simple. It's like, find food, stay alive, you know, get married, have some kids and make sure the kids survive. You know, like, and that that just that by itself occupied ninety nine percent of your energy. Um, so there wasn't much ambiguity or or debate around like what your purpose should be. Like the fact that you can even ask what your purpose should be, like represents that you you are already at like such a prosperous level that you should be really grateful. But it's the thing is, is is these, you know, today, it's, you know, in places like the United States or Western Europe, like the majority of people are at that place that they're prosperous enough that they can sit around and ask themselves what the, what their purpose is, and and it causes you know this kind of existential angst and this anxiety and constant low level stress and questioning of identity, and so I think that's just the trade off for the the safety and prosperity that we have, and obviously I wouldn't go back, <laughs> you know it's like I don't think anybody is like you know raising their hand and saying I wish it was 1921. But at the same time, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's not a problem.
1: And, you know, and going back to this notion of like self-improvement, you you state that this is really about prioritizing better values. And you say that there's good values and then there's shitty values. Um, what, what are some examples of those? How do you differentiate between the two?
0: You know, so in this question of like, what do we give a fuck about and and what should we prioritize in our life? You know, there, there are some general principles that psychology has found and, you know, philosophy has found, you know, it's a lot of it's just classic wisdom right so it's it's like don't try not to give a fuck about things you can't control you know there's that that old uh serenity prayer which is you know god grant me the strength to accept things i can't change the the courage to change things i can and the wisdom to know the difference you know it's it's classic stuff like that not prioritizing um kind of s- what i guess i would call like status games impressing people you know having the cool car, or the cool watch, like, you know, that stuff's fun, but it's not, that shouldn't be like your highest life priority. I think focusing on, you know, just just doing things that are socially productive. You know, there there are ways to kind of get ahead in the world or accomplish goals in a way. You know, this is actually stuff that I write about on my on my website a few times, is that it's there there's kind of like a dark side of goal setting. Uh, um, and one of them is that they actually find that when you set extrinsic goals so like you know they they did this with college students but it's like if you set college students who who like set specific goals of like to achieve a certain grade on a test or whatever they're actually more likely to cheat and so i think you know one of the kind of pitfalls to be aware of is is you know setting external goals of like hitting certain metrics hitting a certain You know, level in your career or whatever, a certain amount of money. Like these, can be very motivating and useful. But I think we have to be careful not to base all of our motivation uh, on external goals, because it's there's this propensity to start cutting corners. And you know, oh, maybe I just kind of screw this guy over over here. You know, it's just a little thing; nobody will notice. You know, it can kind of get in the way of our our sense of, of of ethics. So. Um, those are just a few examples, but, you know, I, I think to tie it back into criticism of the self-help industry, you know, this whole conversation we're having here about this like pervading existential crisis in society and this kind of, this constant question of who am I, what's the meaning of my life? What do I, who do I want to be? I identified, or I, I believe that a lot of what the self-help industry has done in the past few decades, I think has made that struggle worse for people rather than better because it's focused so much on external goals it's focused so much on happiness it's focused so much on like you can be rich with a guitar shaped swimming pool too just do these five things like that that's that's perpetuating the problem for people not solving it
1: and and it's interesting it's like once i guess for many entrepreneurs I think the reason they become entrepreneurs to an extent is freedom, right? Like freedom being the ultimate goal of freedom, how, you know, I, you know the decisions I make, how I spend my time, like, who do I answer to all of that? And it's interesting because, I mean, I think you went to 55 countries in five years, you met a lot of people, you had a lot of experiences by and large. I mean, you had that freedom and then you, you know, basically at the end of it all, you say that absolute freedom by itself means nothing. And in fact, then you got to make the case for the importance of commitment and sticking to things and saying no to things and actually having like less choices and less options, um, if you could speak to that.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of a paradox, very similar to kind of like the happiness requires struggle. One of the things I discovered is, is I, I believe that freedom requires limitation. Like Freedom is not meaningful unless there's some sort of limitation that you put on yourself. And what's interesting, I didn't realize this until recently, but if you apparently the understanding of liberty from the ancient Greeks and Romans all the way up until the Enlightenment and the founders of the United States was the idea of liberty was actually very similar to this. It was liberty was seen as choosing what you're going to sacrifice for. It was choosing what you're going to give up. Um, It, you know, the, the kind of this modern notion of freedom is like, having twenty-five different types of cereal at your local Walmart, like that's that's not freedom, that's optionality, which is very different. But yeah, I mean I, I kind of everybody's got their vice and some people it's it's fancy cars, other people it's money, you know, some people it's like gambling or drugs. You know, mine was um I'd say mine was novelty. My like in my 20s in particular, you know, it's like I wanted to go to every country, I wanted to go to every party, I wanted to meet every type of person, I wanted to learn like 20 languages, I wanted to do a bunch of crazy stuff, you know, date a bunch of interesting people, and I did a lot of that, but it was it was funny because it's, you know, it, I think much in the same way that, you know, somebody who's obsessed with money, when they get rich, they realize that money doesn't really mean anything. I kind of had the same experience, but it's like I just had to go like all over the world and have all these crazy experiences to realize that in a vacuum, none of these experiences really mean anything. Like none of my friends were around. All my family was back home. It was all, it was just very like superficial. and, And it's not to say like I didn't, you know, I I enjoyed it. I wouldn't take it back. I don't regret it. Like I I think I needed to go through that to learn that. But I bought wholeheartedly into this idea that maximizing freedom just meant doing and having more stuff. And um, I just think that's a very like shallow way of looking at it.
1: it, it interesting. It's like during that period of time, would you have believed if anyone told you, okay, at some point this guy's gonna settle down? you're going to get married, right? Like, did you, could you imagine in that moment when you're, or you're going, you know, you're jet setting all over the world, somebody from the outside looking in, they thought, nope, not that guy.
0: Well, it's funny because, you know, one of, one of the things I, I I've written and I've actually posted this on social media occasionally. And it's funny because every time I do, it's not popular, but I, I post it anyway, because I think it's important, which is, you know, generally speaking, I think, whatever it is in your life that you're most afraid to do, like that causes you the most amount of anxiety, you know, within reason, like it, it's usually, that's the the exact thing that you need to be doing. Like it's, that's the thing that you're avoiding the most. And so for me, it was, I was just absolutely terrified of any sort of commitment whatsoever. I was terrified of committing to a person, to a city, to a career, to anything. And so if you would, if you had pulled aside like 26 year old Mark and said like, you know, you know what you need, (laughs) you need to, you need to choose what you're willing to give up, (laughs) you know, like that would have terrified me, but it's, it, it would have terrified me because it was exactly true. It was exactly what I needed to do. And it was exactly what I needed to hear. And so, yeah, I, I think that's true in a lot of our cases. It's like the, the, the thing that, that our friends or family says to us that scares us the most, like that's probably our blind spot. That's probably what we're missing.
1: And, and it seems like in this day and age, um, it, it, people want certainty. Like they want to know for sure. And you know, you talk about the idea that growth is like this endlessly iterative process of, of basically not just going from wrong to right, but going from wrong to, to less wrong. Um, where where does that stem from? Like this, this idea that people really want certainty, and yet you state that certainty is the enemy of growth.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, it's kind of it's kind of like the classic enlightenment version, you know, epistemology of like, you know, you can't ever arrive at truth, you can just approach it. And I think that's important to understand today. I mean, I, I think it's the struggle today is, you know, the world has always been a very ambiguous. If you dive into any specific subject, whether it's like psychology or economics, probably law, I don't know anything about law, but it's probably true with law as well. But like you dive deep enough into any subject and- eventually you just hit this layer of pure ambiguity. It's like people, you know, it's like you reach a point where it's like nobody knows what the hell they're doing and everybody's just kind of figuring it out as they go along. And I think that's always been true. And I think that's always been true in everything. It's just that most people weren't aware of it. Like there was kind of like the way people's access to information was organized in such a way that there was a perceived certainty or or a confidence in what was true and what was untrue and i think what the internet has done is it's just blown that up you know like what the internet has done is it's it's revealed that ambiguity that's always been there and because most people didn't go to grad school and don't have phd's and didn't study <laughs> ambiguous fields you know their entire adult life most people don't handle that very well and so you see a lot of people you know there's people lash out people gravitate towards conspiracy theories people become very tribal you know these are all just like very base level instinctual reactions to to uncertainty and so kind of the message i preach is like i mean for for me personally it actually came from buddhism you know Buddha, a big part of component of buddhism is is developing a comfort with with just not knowing things not feeling like you have to know things or fill in a gap with a a certainty but also just understanding that like knowledge is is ambiguous. Like there's a, there's there's a constant process to knowledge, and we get closer to the truth, and we our understanding grows over time. But we, we never there's never like a capital T truth. There's never like a an endpoint where you're like you know unless you're talking about like gravity or something. Like there's never an endpoint where you're like okay now we know what's going on forever and ever, and it's never going to be questioned. Like it, it just doesn't happen. These days it seems as though our society is more divided than ever.
1: An us versus them mentality of outrage and victimization. I asked Mark what he thinks is happening here and what it could mean for our future.
0: Well, I think this is kind of where these two problems that we're, we've been discussing intersect, right? So you've got uh, a population of largely prosperous, safe people compared to any point in human history who are suffering crises of meaning and, and purpose in mass and then you combine that with the the unleashed ambiguity of everything by the internet and so uh, yeah i think a lot of people are building you know they're they're choosing their belief systems based on identity and based on on group identif- identifiers it's happening in a lot of places in the world but it seems it's a very american thing which is fascinating but it's also upsetting, <laughs> you know, like it's it's just like, come on, people. The other thing I'll say too, you know, obviously, like there's a lack of critical thinking that's going on. But the United States has a long history of, to put it bluntly, like a lack of critical thinking. You know, it's it's this is a country. It's a highly, highly religious country. Not only is it highly religious, but it's it's religious fundamentalists make up a large percentage of the population. Um, it's a place that a lot of people came here because of their religious fundamentalism, and so you know, it's it's a country where forty percent of the population doesn't believe in evolution, and I think it's like twenty or twenty five percent believe in angels, and uh, you know, so it, it, on the one hand, it it doesn't surprise me that people are not interpreting like large data sets of epidemiological studies correctly. <laughs> like it's actually you know, I'd be surprised if it was the opposite. Um, so it, it's. Um, on the one hand, it is it is hard to watch and it is upsetting, but it's, on the other hand, it's also, you know, one thing I did during the pandemic was I just, I started reading a lot of history. I, I started reading a lot, of, a lot about the Spanish flu in 1918. I started reading a lot about like World War I, World War II, the Civil War, even the Revolutionary War, just kind of understanding like how Americans have historically responded in times of crisis. And it's funny, again, it's one of these like historical you know, we have a skewed lens of history. Like it, it's pretty much all of these moments in our history. Like we were a total fucking mess. Like people, like people were like during World War One. like there was like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. Woodrow Wilson was doing like really awful shit, you know, putting people in prison for no reason. Um, Spanish flu, a bunch of people who didn't believe it was real, refused to close schools, you know, refused to wear masks. I mean, it, it this is, it, it made me feel better reading a lot of history to just understand that this is, this is, um, you know, it's the same song, just different century in terms of the American society. So then if if you've been
1: reading history, I'm curious if this came up, um, and it's out of the state of society as it relates to victimhood or the outrage culture. Ryan holiday was on the podcast. He talks about outrage porn. Um, I know you're, you know, you put out a lot of content out there that a, a lot of people don't agree with. Um, is this something that, you know, is, is this, is is the pendulum going to swing the other way? And then like a lot of this outrage that people express, does that then again, come back to identity, right? In the sense that once that is like, if that person starts taking responsibility or ownership over that aspect of their life, they're almost robbed of that identity of, as, as being, you know, uh, a victim or outrage at whatever
0: that situation is. Totally. I, I think what is unique about this moment in time is the obsession with identity. And on the left the obsession is mainly around gender and ethnicity and on the right it's mainly around you know nationality immigrant status and religion and it's everybody feels persecuted you know everybody like it's everybody does it's it's fascinating you know i have a newsletter you know it's like over half a million people receive it and it's crazy like i would write i would write emails you know, I get hundreds of responses each week. And I would write from the same email, I would get lefties and righties, like, complaining to me that I was offensive to them, that I was singling out their group, you know, it's like, and it's like some insinuation that they took from some sentence that had nothing to do with politics, you know, and they're like, this is offensive, and you should understand that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it'd be like two emails back to back. One person who thinks I'm racist, the next person who thinks I like hate Christians or whatever. And and it's, it's crazy. It's just, it's, there's this, so that, that, that part of the obsession I think is new. Um, David Brooks actually wrote a really great column uh, about this. I think a month or two ago, I forget what it was called, but he, he kind of pointed out, he's more, much more optimistic about this stuff than maybe I am. But he pointed out, he said, you know, periodically, like every generation or two, America has had kind of a identity-driven clash, like cultural clash between the right and left. You know, and the last time it was in the sixties, and before that it was, you know, in the progressive era and the the twenties. And he said what he's he his optimism basically stemmed from the fact he said that he said, the reason it, it, it always peters out is because the the hardcore leftists who are like anti-capitalism and revolutionary and everything, uh, eventually they, they grow up and they need to get jobs. And once they get jobs, they have like car payments. And then once they have car payments, they like, they want to make more money. And so he said, by the time that that generation hits like 40, it's all it's a bunch of platitudes and like advertising slogans and stuff like that. And so he, he felt like he's like, this stuff is going to water down in 10 years it's going to be like you're going to be seeing car commercials like you know talking about this stuff i don't know if that's true but i definitely do believe that the 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 reason that this time around it is so identity based is is because of again what we're talking about that that kind of crisis of meaning that culturally we're going through of uh, that that ambiguity of like who am i who should i be you know out of all these options what do I choose? What's the most meaningful? Like these are hard decisions and it's very stressful. It's very anxiety inducing.
1: So then like, as we talked about a lot of this stuff, if someone who's listening right now and they're thinking, okay, um, I'm struggling with the same crisis. What do they do next? Like what, what is that? Like, is there something that they do or is there something that they don't do or stop doing? Like what, what advice would you give to them as far as like a good next step?
0: Generally what I've found found most effective for myself and and people I know and people I talk to is is it's start by removing things. So and it and it can even be as superficial as like removing who you follow on social media or removing social media entirely or certain platforms entirely, removing websites that you follow, removing subscriptions to newspapers. Um you know, start with removing information sources, removing um, people who drain you or you know work affiliations or whatever that drain you. Remove things in your personal life that are not, you know, it, it's for me, it just keeps coming back. Like every time I struggle with this stuff, which has basically been every three to four years, <laughs> my entire adult life, it's I always come back to it's it's by eliminating stuff that makes, that makes it better for me. And again, I I think it's just, we're, we're all swimming in abundance right now. And, and that's, that's actually causing most of our problems.
1: Yeah. It's a, like, I read something the other day where it talked about, like, if you were to look at Rockefeller years and years and years ago, this guy a trillionaire um, compared to somebody today living on a $50,000 a year salary, like they have more luxuries. Their life is better than, than Rockefeller back in the day then like in terms of like totally. access to information, food, safety, like on demand, like you get food. I mean, that's just amazing.
0: Yeah, totally. And it's, I'm, I'm a big fan of Steven Pinker, um, which I don't, he's written a lot about this. I mean, he is, he is two gigantic books, like 800 page books that it's just nothing but data about how much better it is today than any other time in human history. And it's crazy because people still don't believe him. People are still like, no, 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 today's awful. Like things are terrible. And it's like, no, it's like by every piece of data you can find just about things are better today. It doesn't mean that we don't have problems today. We have tons of problems today, but like in any, any way you want to slice it, this is the best time to be alive, and that's part of the problem. <laughs> that's part of what's causing the problem.
1: So, Mark, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: I think I think just being a game changer—it's willing to look at unconventional ideas or options, being willing to to perhaps sacrifice, to risk, I should say, uh, shame or embarrassment. You know, do, doing the thing that's not perhaps uh, expected because that that generally anything that's going to be high impact, there is going to be a quite a, like a lot of social risk attached to it. And so I think developing the ability to act on that, like act despite that social risk is it's a huge thing to develop in oneself.
1: I hope you've enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast with our guest Mark Manson and have gained new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Mark Manson, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.